Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Top Docs Radio, brought to you by Medical Association of Georgia. With over 7,800 physician members, MAG is pleased to advocate on behalf of Georgia's patients and physicians. Visit mag.org and on Twitter at mag1849. Join the conversation on Twitter at Top Docs on BRX. Good afternoon, everyone. It is CW. Thank you for joining us on the Top Docs Radio Show. Thanks for making us a part of your day today. We really appreciate you being here. And it is our ongoing series with Medical Association of Georgia. We've been bringing you some outstanding guests along the way throughout our partnership with the Medical Association of Georgia. And today's no different. Going to be getting into some topics that are very important to our listeners, particularly in the medical practices that check us out each week. Um, We're going to be talking about the MIPS program and and how the Affordable Care Act and changes within it have changed the landscape a little bit around how medical practices document the care they that they provide, how they plan the care that they provide and deliver that as well. So I'm going to be sitting down with Dr. Adrienne Mims. She is the medical director and vice president for Medicare Quality Improvement with Alliant Quality is clearly an expert on that. If you get into her background, which I'll let her share here in a moment, um, you'll know that she's somebody that that can certainly help guide a practice through successful transition into these programs and being able to implement them as they are intended. So thanks for taking some time. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) Appreciate that. Talk a little bit about your background before we get into uh, the MIPS program. Sure. I'm a family medicine physician, also boarded in geriatrics, and I spent more than 17 years working in quality improvement at Kaiser Permanente. And since then, I've been in several organizations working with Medicaid quality improvement and now Medicare quality improvement, understanding not just how we currently practice, but ways we need to modify the way we practice in order to serve patients better, but have Medicare understand the good work that we're doing. So that involves quality reporting. And as we're talking about today, the MIPS program, that's a new change in payment. So we'll be discussing that. (laughs) And it's going to have a pretty significant impact for sure. What got you interested in quality improvement? Well, as I was Initially, training for um, medical school, I like one-on-one patient care, which is great. But I decided to get a master's in public health to be able to impact a larger group of people. And I was um, spending time at Kaiser Permanente taking care of the patients. I saw one at a time. But as I looked at our entire company, I wanted to make sure we were improving on measures like immunizations, influenza, pneumococcal Um, immunizations, not just in the one-on-one patient that I saw, but in our entire practice. And so I began using some skills of how to do that. And it's directly transferable to what we'd like to be able to help practices do today. I've had my opinions about the Affordable Care Act over time, but there are some components to it that I believe are very good things and that will have a, a real appreciable impact on overall cost and spend in the healthcare system, as well as patient outcomes, obviously, as the number one goal. It's just that it'll come with, I, I believe, some decreased cost to the system in the end. And that is precision medicine being one greater focus on population health that you're talking about, where we're starting to identify demographics within the population that 
are at higher risk uh, for developing a number of different problems and that with a little bit of intervention and education engagement with those people that we can begin to turn some of those outcomes a little bit, at least for a good part of the, the patient population. I know that the patients themselves do have a measure of homework of their own to do that and be compliant with those plans. But the more we engage with them and, and put some of this effort out, I think that it really will in the end have a great impact. And, and part of the ACA that we're going to be talking about today is dealing with the new merit-based incentive payment system or MIPS, as they like to say. We'll be getting into that. So can you talk a little bit about just exactly what is MIPS for for those either practice administrators out there or doctors that may be listening that are familiar with it, but not fully sure they understand what is it? Sure. I'd like to clarify that and, and the differences between that and the, the ACA. So um, every time we turn around, there is new laws being passed. And the Affordable Care Act was very good at passing information to make clinicians look at the cost of care, so resource use. And that's very important to us now. But one challenge in terms of Medicare payment that has been around for a long time was the sustainable growth rate, or SGR. We realized that every beginning of the year, people who bill Medicare had to worry about whether or not they would get the full payment yeah. or whether there would be some reduction. Typically, it was a letter saying the rates are getting ready to go down. The rates were getting ready to go down. And, you know, some people altered their practice by telling the Medicare patients, uh, don't come in until after March because I needed to know that I was going to get paid. Wow. Well, with the passage of the law last year, MACRA, it did two major things. One thing is that it got rid of the sustainable growth rate formula. Woohoo! We don't have to worry about, you know, 27% reductions in our Medicare payments. But the purpose for it also was to put in a new payment structure, MACRA, which is going to take place in 2019. The real deal with this is that we have to start preparing to in 2017 so that Medicare will have enough experience by 2019 to know how to pay you. Hence, MACRA is divided into two parts. And today we're going to talk about one of those parts, which is MIPS. And, and let me just elaborate MACRA because I keep using that term MACRA, the law of MACRA that passed April of 2015. That's the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act of 2015. All of our Medicare payments are based on laws. That's a law that was passed by Congress. It is not going to be repealed because it was overwhelmingly passed by Congress. I mean, 392 people in the House of Representatives and 92 uh, uh, senators. And so very few people said no to this. So it's not going to be repealed regardless of who the new president will be. Yeah. And to go back to the conversation, and when I opened, I was mentioning the Affordable Care Act. Basically, the piece that I was tying into the MIPS discussion was more how we're starting to move away from problem-focused thinking in terms of how we look at this patient and what we're planning to do more towards the outcomes and are the things that we're doing actually changing their status? Is it is my patient's A1C going down? Is the blood pressure improving or at least staying you know, in a, in a range that, that is desirable or better, more desirable than going up? Things like that focusing more on the outcome side of things and wellness as a component. And some of that gets tied into 
how this works. Exactly. You're right, because Affordable Care Act made it possible for people to get insurance to get that done. The challenge is Medicare had no way of measuring it. Right. And so MACRA puts in place a way of measuring it more. Now, we've had the Physician Quality Reporting System, or PQRS, that was available. But more than half of the people who bill Medicare didn't report those measures. So it's kind of like you go to get your car fixed and you come out and they give you this detailed report of everything they did. And you check, did they change the windshield wiper? Did they check my oil level? Did the tires get rotated? But we look at Medicare differently. We just send them a bill because we saw the patient. Well, that doesn't tell the quality of the care we gave the patient. So the PQRS reporting, which then translates into something we'll talk about with MIPS, it really describes the quality, how many of those patients with diabetes had their diabetes under control. That's what the PQRS reporting is. And people weren't doing that. So with the passage of MACRA, it includes four components. One of those is quality reporting. So it's putting a a stronger stick to say that I want you to tell me about the quality of care that you're providing to those patients when I'm paying the bill as a Medicare insurer. So what will my experience from a workflow perspective be as a physician with this new change? Uh, Great question. So uh, as we are right now, patient calls for an appointment for the chief complaint and they show up for their appointment. You take care of that and they're gone. And what Affordable Care Act tried to do was begin to change people to don't just think about them when they show up, but think about that whole population of people Think proactively of all these 5,000 people who call me their doctor. What do they need and how can I manage them even if they don't come into my office? So what MIPS does, it puts more meat onto doing that. It really incentivizes through an incentive payment or a penalty doing that. So if we think of um, one of the areas, um, it's four areas within this merit-based incentive payment program, MIPS. One of it is quality reporting. So again, if you look at all of the patients that I take care of who have diabetes, it's not looking at the few that actually came in to me and I did their A1C and it was well. It's looking at all of those Medicare beneficiaries who have diabetes and what percentage of them had an A1C and it was under control and reporting that data directly to Medicare. So it's a stronger way that we can focus more population-based as opposed to only looking at one person at a time when they come in. That's one component. Another component is how we do that. Right. So a second area within um, MIPS is called the Clinical Practice Improvement Activities. And these are not unfamiliar to physicians who've looked at How can I begin to do population care? How can I take care of patients outside of that face-to-face time with them sitting in front of me? It means having additional hours during the day that they can come in when they get off work or before they go to work. It means having a 24-hour phone line that they can call in for advice after hours. It means having outreach to them without them coming in and saying, 
you need to go get your pneumonia vaccine. You're over 65 and it hasn't happened yet. It means engaging them with education so they need, so they will know from a care plan all the things they can do throughout the year and when they need to check back in with me. So it's a whole host of activities that is different from just the face-to-face encounter that is part of this new MIPS program that they're incentivizing. Talking with Medicare quality improvement expert and physician, Dr. Adrian Mims of Alliant Quality, learning a little bit about the MIPS program. And, and Dr. Mims, when we talk about the, the reporting side of those activities, how do I contact my patients out there? Are there, like I, uh, through the course of my different shows I host here, I've, I've talked to a number of technology companies, for example, that add a level of automation to that process. They, they remind me as a physician or as a, one of the people in my office, potentially, uh, this group of patients have not been contacted in a period of time. Um, some of those systems can actually automate some of those contacts where it's actually my voice, potentially, um, reaching out to them, but it's electronic, um, but it helps me be compliant with some of those requirements that, uh, you know, some of those patients required a little bit more engagement. Like you say, even though they're not in my office, I'm still trying to touch them, remind them to do certain things. Are there, I, can, I don't guess there's requirements around that, but I mean, are there thoughts around how those types of things affect is one better than the other? I know some offices are not on EMR, for example, but many of them are. So uh, if I'm using some sort of automated system, does that put me, do you think, in better compliance or more likely to be compliant with the various elements of this type of reporting? I think it's very much helpful. Now, the way it's written, you cannot have an electronic health record and still do well within MIPS, though it's going to be a lot easier if you have an electronic health record that can um, have a patient portal where they can look in and get information, that they can get your test results, that they can get those reminders about getting their mammogram without me physically having to call them and waiting for them to come in for an appointment. So if you have an electronic health record, many of them have the ability to pull out of all your patient Mm -hmm. charts who would need something at what point in time and mm-hmm. flag those reminders for your staff. Those people who are creating those software tools that interface with your electronic health record to help do that for you, that's nice too. There is an added cost. But in terms of reporting this back to CMS, there'll be a specific CMS reporting system similar to what it is right now for PQRS and meaningful use. They need to report that information through claims, through their billing, some type of way, or attesting that, yes, I've accomplished this. And some people may be audited, so you just can't say, I did it without documentation. Those types of electronic systems can be helpful. But as um, Medicare looked across the spectrum of clinicians, they realized both primary care and specialty There's some who have all of this working for them already, especially if they're in a large group. But then there's those practices that are small, rural, underserved, may or may not have the technology, may not have a lot of resources. And for that subgroup of people, they are not being held to the same standard. They're going to be compared to peers, 
in terms of quality and resource use. And they'll be compared to their, their peers in terms of um, how well they're doing. So I think it's important that people know that um, there's also help that's going to be available. It was written into the MACRA law that um, Medicare is going to pay organizations to help those practices. They're not going to pay the practices. Right. That would be nice. And we always get that question. Am I going to get an extra <laughs> check to do this? No, no. You will get an incentive payment or a penalty if you don't do this. Yes. But there will be some organizations to help you be successful in this new environment. I think it's an interesting detail that my practice will be stratified uh, against into peer groups, basically. Is that around geography? Is that around, how do they define the the relative strength of my practice, if you will, around technology resources and financial resources, all those types of things, um, along with geography. Like I'm, if I'm practicing out in the North Georgia mountains, uh, may not be the same practice as in Alpharetta. Exactly. So that is being considered. So the areas that they look at is the size of the practice. Number one, are you in a group of three hundred? Um, in primary care, or you're solo or less than five. That's a consideration. Whether you're urban versus rural, because the resources are different um, in terms of the ability to do different things with your patient. Whether or not you are practicing in a health manpower shortage area, those are, are comparable across the United States. So in the rural, small, underserved areas in certain parts of Georgia, you would not be compared to, you know, Alpharetta per se, which is mm-hmm. urban and more affluent. Right. So they are able to, through CMS data, make sure that they're comparing apples to apples. So you'll be compared to peers on the areas of the quality measures and resource use. Um, I, I hinted a couple of times about resource use. So let me elaborate. There are some parts of your patients that they're looking at. Number one, all of your patients who you see that bill Medicare, what is their total cost? But they compare that to a practice that's similar to yours. Then they look at subgroups within that, the people who are hospitalized and what the cost is for hospitalization. And subgroups within that, the ones with diabetes or heart failure, COPD. And so within all of those higher categories of costs, you're compared within your peers. Does that hold true? Uh, something I've, I've learned through our, our shows with MAG, dealing with more on the, the commercial side of reimbursement, but some, sometimes in a, particularly outside the city where, uh, you know, as we talked about, the number of physicians are, are less. Some physician groups, um, maybe they have the same specialty as someone else, but they have kind of penetrated their practice into focusing on some very high acuity patients within that group that are maybe sicker than in another internal medicine doctor's office, uh, just by the nature of where they've chosen their practice. Does that come into play a little bit uh, in this case? Because from what I understand, sometimes in the commercial side, I can be penalized as a physician if I'm one of those specialists that does take those very difficult cases that make up maybe a higher ratio of my patient population than another practice that has more 
average patients, if you will, the the less complicated ones of that type. Do you follow me? Um, I do. And for instance, if a person has hypertension, diabetes, heart failure, COPD, and they have a certain rate of hospitalizations, that'll look different than the my peer down the, the street who are taking patients who only has one of those diagnoses. So my patients all have four and five diagnoses, and they have ones that have one diagnosis. So there are ways that they can be able to compare. I think one of the areas that really come into play is really the subspecialist. So I talk a lot to ophthalmologists, and they say that if you compare me to a general ophthalmologist when I'm a retinal surgeon, right. I'm going to be more costly. Exactly. And I think it would be a value for them particularly to look at their patterns right now. Medicare has made available a report card. It's called a Quality Resource Utilization Report or QRUR report. It's there. It's up on the website and it's there for everyone who has ever built Medicare. And it's showing their pattern of their cost of care compared to what Medicare looks at as their peers. Look at that now because it's available for 2014 and 15. But you need to be proactive with that. They don't, that doesn't happen magically. Well, the report card is already there, but people don't know. So you're know saying that you can there. go and see your score, is what you're saying? Yes. Okay. It's a wonderful report. Most people don't even know they have a report. And so I can look back, see what Medicare is viewing me, how, how they're rating my comparative use of resources and then potentially be able to either, is there a a way to, I don't know if appeal is the right word, but to maybe discuss that on any level or do you just need to take that data, change or not change certain elements of your practice? On both levels. So when they first make it available, there's a time period that people can have a discussion about it. Uh, But since most people don't even know that it's there, they, they miss that opportunity. But the real value of it is, like in the example I mentioned with the retinal surgeon, if you see that it does not take in consideration how you are an outlier, that's the same for you and all your peers that are retinal surgeons. And that's the area that your specialty society wants to work directly with CMS as an appeal, not you Mm one-on-one. And that goes to other clinicians. I've talked to clinicians who exclusively practice in long-term care. They show up as an internist. So are they being compared to the internist who has a practice who only sees outpatients when they as an internist are seeing only patients in the skilled nursing facility, which are a lot sicker? (laughs) Sure. So it's important for them to pull down their report now and look and see if that's being considered. And it's on an individual basis. So they say, well, do I really have a report card? Well, we know that each commercial insurer has a report card on your performance because they're paying you the bills and they know how much you cost relative to your peers. And so that gets you in network versus out of network. That gets you a star rating or that gets you promoted among their their beneficiaries. Well, Medicare has created that similar report for fee-for-service, just the Medicare fee-for-service. And so that QRUR report is available on the Medicare website. And if you've not done that, the number one thing to do after you get off this call 
is to go look up your report. Now, for interpreting that report, we as the Quality Improvement Organization, Alliant Quality, the QIO, we are contracted by Medicare to support you in understanding how to read that report. And although it's one score that compares you to others that are your peer group, when you look at it, it has 10 other exhibits in that report. Who were your patients that are hospitalized? Which hospitals are they showing up in? Of the people with diabetes, who, what are their costs? What are those patients' actual names that are contributing to the report? It's a lot of information that's truly actionable. But right behind the patient outcomes that we're trying to achieve with this is tied by reimbursement as the physician. So how does this all tie into that for me based on what my experience is right now and where it's going? Okay, I, I love that. Number one, fee-for-service is not going away. I think we need to be clear and let people know fee-for-service doesn't go away. What happens right now is that people get percentages of incentives or penalties for reporting with their electronic health record, reporting quality measures, and their cost of care. In the new system under MACRA, it's still, you're still fee-for-service, but then there's these additional reporting of quality measures, of how you interact with your patients with the electronic health record, whether you're doing some type of quality improvement, and your overall costs, those four areas will impact a percentage of payment in addition or a penalty on top of fee-for-service. So one can say, I will ignore all of this because I'm retiring soon. And what you're saying is, I'll accept the 4% penalty. That penalty rises. And so it goes up. At this point in time, it goes up to 9%. But then in the future, it may be higher than that. So when we look at it right now, the percentage penalty or incentive is even higher than 4%. So when we compare what's happening to our payment now for -for fee-for-service to where it'll be in 2019, these programs will initially have less of an impact. But they they ratchet up quickly. Yeah, I, I remember hearing that the difference between those that are performing at a high level against those uh, value-based reporting requirements and measures to those that are underperforming, that the, the difference can be somewhere between 20 and 30 percent sometimes. It, it can you, be pretty significant. You're right. Um, at, the, at the base level, we're talking about a plus 4 percent or a minus 4 percent. However, if you're in the high performing, you have the ability to make even far more than that because this is this is an amount of money that is fixed. So the people who do not do quality reporting and the people who are the losers, they are funding a bank, a piggy bank of those people who are getting <laughs> it. So although you might get 4%, if there's a lot of people who are getting penalized, you get that money too. Yeah. And so that's why it gets up to such high percentages. And if you are a group of uh, clinicians who are taking care of the most sick, as we talked about before, the most sick, you get a bonus on top of that if you're reporting. 
So there is the ability to potentially get really high um, rates, but the downside, the downside penalty from 4% going to 9% is pretty fixed. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier some of the Things like having extended hours, for example, to be able to accommodate people's work schedules or having phone-related services where I can access some information as a patient. Um, Now, are these requirements or are they the types of things that would move me into that top performing line? You know what I'm saying? I can either stay at baseline and not necessarily offer these, but if I want to step it up, then I add those. Or is it, if you don't have them, you're penalized? Very good. So... As I mentioned, there are four areas within um, the new MIPS. Quality reporting was one. How you're using your electronic health record is two. Your cost of care is three. But this fourth area is called clinical practice improvement. So they want people to embark upon looking at how they practice and improve it. And that's where those areas come in at. That actually accounts for 25% of this whole um, way that they're calculating the composite score. So one of my 4% is tied to this. It's a little bit more than one. It's not actually equal to a one, but part of that 4%. Right, I see. And And that will obviously expand as the penalties or bonuses expand. um, It may stay fixed. The percentages and how that's calculated is part of the proposed rule for Medicare payment. And that may shift and change over time. But these are the same things that if you considered transforming to be a patient-centered medical home, you had to go make changes across your entire delivery system in multiple standards to get that certification. What Medicare is saying is you only have to change one or two of those at a time. And actually, it's not the whole standard. It's a piece of it. So for those clinicians who have been Working on patient-centered medical home, you get full credit for this particular piece. Physician and Medicare quality improvement expert, Dr. Adrian Mims, is talking with us about the MIPS program and and changes that are coming about to the way uh, we are expected to deliver and document our care, as well as the way that we are reimbursed around that. Now, is it, we talked a lot about primary care. It seems like a lot of this is really kind of uh, rubber meets the road in internal medicine and family practice, but is it other specialists as well? I'm glad you asked that. It actually is all specialists who build Medicare, primary care and specialty. Um, For the first uh, year and two, it's physicians, it's nurse practitioners, it's physician's assistants, um, and it's also certified nurse anesthetists. But later on, after year three, they'll bring in the social workers, the audiologists, the, the dietitians, other people who are billing Medicare, but they're not part of it initially. So when we talk about the physicians, we talk a lot about primary care because they see the bulk of the patients and do most of the care. They are the lower paid and more likely to feel the impact of even the 4% Mm -hmm. incentive or deficit. But this also applies to the vast number of specialists, of which there are more specialists providing care to Medicare beneficiaries than there are primary care. Mm. So in our position that I'm at Alliant Quality, we actually have access to all of the uh, clinicians in the state who bill Medicare. And when we break that down to actual clinicians, the frontline clinicians of 
internal medicine, family medicine, or general practice, they're not the majority. The majority, or more than 65%, are the specialties. Because if you think about a Medicare patient, they have a cardiologist, they have an orthopedic surgeon, they have a nephrologist, they have an ophthalmologist. (laughs) And so they're seeing a lot of different specialists, maybe only now and then, but each one that they see is significantly more costly with why they're seeing them, whether it's a cataract surgery or hip replacement or dialysis, far more expensive than just the care they're getting in primary care. As the healthcare laws have been rolled out, there have been times where parts of them have been delayed or put back. I, I think that on some level, some of our colleagues out there are thinking and hoping maybe that's the case here. And I know that, I, I believe it's with MACRA that there's a period right now where they're kind of looking at some things and some uh, details that may be finalized that are maybe slightly different than when it first came out for public consumption. Uh, and I think it's, I want to say around October, somewhere in there, third quarter some or early fourth quarter where I guess it'll be finalized. What do you think might change around what we're talking about between then and now? I, I can talk about what is considered for change. And, <laughs> and, you know, MAG and the AMA and all of our societies did a fantastic job of writing responses to the initial proposed rule that says as of the beginning of 2017, January, we're going to use that time period of January 17 to see how you're doing to project your payment for 2019. Well, MAG, AMA, and all of our specialty societies told CMS, you're going to tell us for sure about this in October and expect us to start in January? Yeah. That's not enough lead time. <laughs> we really want you to push that out. We'd like for you to push it out a whole year. Right. That's the request. Now, I'm not a betting person. <laughs> and yes, we did see things like ICD-10 be pushed off yeah. years. But this is actually written in the law. And the law actually says that MACRA is to start 2019. So the question is, we have to have a reporting period to determine that payment. And do you want only six months of of some measure or you want a whole year? And then when can we push that off? Can, Can we push it off six months and really start really June of 2017? That's one ask. One ask is make it a whole year. We'll see, you know, in the final rule this uh, later this year, what they've um, chosen to do. And um, Andy Slavitt, the, um, you know, acting administrator for CMS, has uh, heard this message and has said that he's heard the message. Does this do anything with meaningful use? What it does is it changes. So meaningful use right now has some definitions of how active one uses their electronic health record. Although that term goes away, in MIPS, how you interact with your electronic health record is still there. And the percentage of value it is goes up over time. And the components that are relevant, like having a patient portal, reporting to a registry, using um, um, population-based measures, Uh, having uh, security and safety, those were components of meaningful use, components of it. Those components exist in the new macro MIPS part. 
So do the term meaningful use went away? Oh, yeah, it goes away. However, (laughs) (laughs) it's just living someplace else now under a different name. Yeah. Anybody exempt? Yes. It's good to say that. Who is exempt? If this is your first year billing Medicare Part B, you're exempt. But the next year, you qualify. (laughs) So so that's one group. Um, A second group is if you really don't do that much Medicare billing. You know, some people like GYN, they do take care of the occasional Medicare patient, you know, because of oncology or other factors. So if you have less than $10,000 a year in Medicare billing and have taken care of less than 100 Medicare beneficiaries in a given year, you're exempt. This is not worth it to you or Medicare to have you involved in this. What's your best advice in terms of getting ready to be able to know I'm doing what I need to do? I want to participate. I want to be one of those top performers, or I just want to be compliant and be right in the middle at a minimum. What do I need to do? Number one, look at your QRUR report, the quality quality resource use report so that you know how you are comparing to your peers and the cost of your care. Number two, begin quality reporting through PQRS. There's multiple ways of doing it, and it is part of the new system and counts for 50-50% of the new measures. So you want to get that one right, and you can get started this year with PQRS and spare yourself being penalized in 2018 by getting the practice now. Those are two major ones. And then if you, you know, plan to be in practice over the next five years and ahead, if you're not on an electronic health record, really, you, you do want to get one. And if you just purchase one that's so that your notes are handwritten or no longer handwritten, but they're typed, we need to do more than that. We need to be able to communicate with people and make it more meaningful. And so it is a value to enhance how you're using it. I'd say... We need to transform our way we practice. It cannot continue to be episodic care based on the patient calling with a complaint, scheduling a visit to come see us. This whole movement is about just that. We center it around payment because payment changes behavior. But we have a healthcare system that's built on an episodic model of waiting till the patient decides that they're sick enough or have a question to come up, come and show in front of a physician and the physician pays for seeing them one-on-one. However, we need to transform our whole healthcare system to population base. That is, someone is looking at all of the people and deciding with the right level of support or assistance or education or self-management or coaching, they need far before getting sick enough to have to come face to face. I've thought about it off and on as more and more focus has been put on reforming how healthcare is delivered and paid for in our country. And I've tried to you know, come up with ideas for how do we also simultaneously get the CW patient in the in the equation more engaged and you talked about how my physician's reimbursement will ultimately likely lead to them doing things differently but i'm curious how we make the patients 
buy into that as well. I know that part of the thought of having me have a higher deductible, for example, or a higher copay, whatever, my my financial obligations being a little greater in my in my care would make me a little more judicious in the way that I, you know, how 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 ready am I to go to the ER? How ready am I to go to the doctor's office to begin with? But beyond that, I, I I'm curious how we can truly begin to incentivize that many more people to take more action themselves as a patient along with what we're doing here for the physicians. Well, let, let's be realistic. Patients don't want to be sick. Finance makes a difference. However, they actually don't want to be sick. And the last thing they really want to do is come into the office. So if we make information for self-help more readily available and mechanisms that they can access, if we make their medical record, their test results, their diagnosis easily accessible to them from their desktop computer, from their home, that they can look in and see where they are. They're watching TV. They're looking and they're reading. They're on the Internet And if they have diabetes or if they have a back pain, they're starting to ask their friends and Google information already. By the time none of that worked and they come in to see me, that's what I'm faced with as a clinician. And so if my medical practice had a portal for the patient to get information that is valid and evidence-based and works, and they can try that and, and they have this self-help method that's available to them, that would make a difference. In addition to that, <clears throat> once I have talked to them and we've decided on a care plan, if my delivery system had a nurse or a social worker or a care manager that can call them in a week or two and clarify what I said, because, you know, sometimes I'm not that clear. Yeah. Those type of things would be helpful in this transformed system. Well, I've used up our time very quickly here. I can't believe it. It's gone so fast. You've given some outstanding information. You have some final thoughts before I get you back to the office? I do. Number one, there are resources available on the CMS website. Go there. Number two, there are organizations called Practice Transformation Networks that are currently recruiting practices to give them support on how to do this transformation. Those people are paid to help you. Number three, as the QIO, Alliant Quality, we're here to help, AlliantQuality.org. Sign up with us. We can help you with this. But on another note, we're at the end of July. We are getting ready to go into August. And we need to think of population health. And in that note, it'll become National Immunization Month. August is National Immunization Month. We're not going to wait until the patient shows up in front of us before we do the vaccine. We need to outreach with population care and make sure that our seniors are getting the influenza shot and the pneumonia shot. Because right now, if you look at where we want to be in the future to save lives for immunization, especially pneumococcal, Georgia is doing very poor. We really need to move the needle and get more shots for the seniors and for the children. It's back to school time. They need to come in and get shots. So with that note, I'll close National Immunization Month this August. Get out there and start practicing with this population-based care. And you can report these as quality measures and get double credit. And Department of Public Health for Georgia is providing information along the vaccines and things like that? Yes. dph.georgia, spelled out, dpa.georgia.gov can get you some information about vaccines for 
children and adults. Yes, and the MAG website also has information too. Thank you. Got all your contact information out there that we needed? Yes, adrian.mims at alliantquality.org. Feel free to email me. Well, I really appreciate you being here today. It's been great talking with you. And for all the folks out there checking us out today, if you've not done so already in the upper left-hand corner of the show page, you'll see the Apple logo. That'll take you over to the iTunes store where the Top Docs Radio Show podcast lives. Make sure you subscribe to us. That way, each week when the new episode comes out, it'll be downloaded straight to your device, ready for you to check out whenever it's convenient for you. We want to say thanks in advance for that. And please share this information. Turn around and click share after you listen to this on your social media and LinkedIn. Uh, Put this information out there. It's going to help uh, physicians and practices that you may possibly be acquainted with, as well as uh, might put some information in the hands of somebody that makes a difference in their personal life as well. So we'll say thanks in advance for everybody that takes the trouble of clicking share. And we'll appreciate that right now. And all the folks over at Medical Association of Georgia, Donald, Tom, Susan, Lori, all those folks I get to work with and Samantha, thanks so much for being great partners, bringing us all these great guests with this information that we've been able to put out there. It's been awesome doing this with you all. And everybody that made us a part of their day today, I want to say thanks so much. We look forward to catching up with you all same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. 